Hi, my name is Shalat Potraju. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Beacon Stack. I have always believed that overnight success takes a decade to achieve. Take the case of Beacon Stack which burst into everyone's radar in 2023 after raising a massive $25 million in the middle of a funding winter and hitting a $10 million annualized revenue run rate. But the fact is that Sharath and his co-founder Ravi had started up way back in 2009 and they struggled for a decade to raise funds and find the big idea. In this very special episode of the Founder Thesis podcast, your host Akshay Dad talks to Sharath Potharaju, the founder of Beacon Stack, about their long journey of making pivots, finding product market fit and building a truly global SaaS business out of India. This episode is a must-listen for all you SaaS fans as Sharad shares his learnings on how to scale up a SaaS business globally without burning a ton of cash. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast and any audio streaming platform to learn how to scale up your startup from the best in the business. Entrepreneurship was always at the back of my mind, but uh, I also learned very quickly that if you want to build some very strong foundation in 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 business, etc., the best way to do that is either in consulting or in banking. Um, you join like you know Merrill, Merrill Goldman, Morgan Lehman. Well, Lehman was there at that time, <laughs> or you join Bain, BCG, McKinsey in consulting. Right? These are the things that really stood out. It gave you a brand. It gave you the network. It gave you more importantly, quantitative thinking capabilities, which really were uh, are much needed. And what really happened for me was, so I went, I went from IIT, went to Duke, where I did my master's, and I focused a lot on getting into banking and consulting. And I had a few offers, and I took Merrill Lynch, which was a Merrill Lynch investment banking role, which, which obviously gave me a tremendous amount of learning. I loved every part of working on Wall Street. Uh, but... I think the intent there was always do that for a couple of years and then move back to India to start up. Uh, I think what really happened for me there was uh, I came, um, it also coincided with after having worked for four years, it coincided with the, the beginning of the financial crisis. So it was a much easier decision in many ways because I realized that either I go back and pursue my dream or wait here and hope that I don't get laid off, which was happening in Mars in on, on on in New York. And I think that's that's really kind of gave gave me the impetus and conviction. And that along with obviously the fact that Ravi was my co co-founder Ravi also was in the US. He was also looking to move back and that's where we collaborated and said, you know, you both have always dreamt of this. Why not we do it do this together? And that's how uh, you know a uh, company came along. Yeah, what did you start, like you and Ravi, at that time so, when you came back to India? So we started a company called Mobstack. It was basically, uh, I mean, it, it was a journey of 10 years where, you know, we built some multiple products. Uh, none of them really uh, great products which had spectacular failures. But I think <laughs> our, our original intent was, uh, was, you know, iPhone had just come out. The mobile revolution was just unfolding itself in 2009, 2010. Uh, we were going around uh, 
and I, I, I think I should take a step back. I should, I should basically also share the fact that Ravi and I have been pretty foolishly romantic about building a global product company out of India. We always dreamt of building a global product company out of India. We felt like the, um, you know, the whole idea of services in India was big, but the next wave is going to be product, and 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 we wanted to do that sitting in. Uh, in India, so we both basically decided to come back to India. When we came back to India, our larger thesis at that time was, which, which is true, which is that mobile, um, mobile is very critical. Uh, you know, uh, iPhone had just released in two thousand seven, so two three years ago, it was unleashing a new economy which people are, uh, were not familiar with, and most importantly, it became the primary internet device in a country like India, where there was not really that much internet penetration. So fundamental assumption was there's going to be a paradigm shift in the way content is being consumed. Web is not going to be the way the first time a person discovers reading content on uh, or news or anything else. They will start reading for the first time on mobile, and mobile becomes a primary internet device. Now, if, in twenty twenty three, it seems extremely obvious, but in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, it seemed like people were like, "What are you talking about?" I mean, we just we're still trying to figure out how to build a website. Why? What? We're not really worried about our mobile strategy. So uh, I think what we did is our first product was our mobile content management system. It essentially enabled um, publishers, et cetera, or content donors to basically plug it into their CMS and have the ability to create mobile sites and mobile apps in a very, very seamless manner. So if you go back a decade back and the first vintage of mobile sites for any top Indian publishing sites, Hindu, Business Line, Deccan Herald, uh, some of the Times properties, etc., were all powered by Mobstack. And uh, wow. in many, in in some ways, I'm ex- I, I pride myself that we kind of helped unleash some of the mobile revolution in India in, 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 a, in a very small way. But as, as you would expect with many entrepreneurial journeys, that was exciting. It was a lot of traction, but not necessarily translating into money for several reasons. Publishing itself was bleeding, which I'm sure you relate to. There's not really that much money. Uh, they were all still trying to figure out their strategy. And the fact that, you know, the whole, our old and entire genesis was that there's a lot of fragmentation, a lot of devices essentially had to be catered to. All that kind of, that fragmentation really died. Nokia died, Blackberry died. So there's just iOS and Android. So you don't really need very sophisticated solutions. So I think a couple of market uh, market movements which really prevented us from scaling the way we thought we will, and uh, yeah, so that okay. that yeah. that didn't really go well. And I want to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive on this part of the journey. Um, so what you built was uh, something like a rendering engine which would render the content in a way that's mobile friendly. That's correct. Okay. Uh, how does it work? Like, uh, I, I'm not a techie, so you'll have to dumb it down for me. But Sure. Uh, so it was basically uh, what you call a dynamic content adaptation platform. We actually uh, we got patents on that too. But the way it essentially wow. did is it, it plugs into the content management system. And it, when, you plug in, uh, uh, when you plug into the content in my CMS, it pulls content uh, from the CMS and on the fly, it puts a page together depending on the screen resolution. Uh, so if okay. the page the request is coming from an iPhone, it puts the page together in that way. If you're putting a page together on 
from a BlackBerry to put put the optimize it for a BlackBerry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so it would get activated only when it detected that it's uh, mobile traffic. Correct. Or Correct. it was always activated. And, uh, it was, no, it, it is only when it comes in. So when it is from that, it would redirect to the m dot whatever the Hindu dot com. Ah, okay, 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 okay. So and it, the, the it, mobile it, site, right? Correct, okay. correct, correct. And then it redirected okay. to that. Okay, okay, okay. Got it, got it. So the m dot Times of India dot com like, was essentially so all, rather beacon stack, but yeah, also pop stack. Correct, correct. If you if you scroll down at the bottom, you would you would always see that powered by mob stack. It would say that, yeah, okay. <laughs> but okay. that's back in the day. And how were you pricing it? It was all priced basically. I mean, some some of those challenges, right? We didn't really know how to price it, so we basically said it will be a certain number of page views and. We tried multiple things. It's just like some flat monthly pricing. Like uh, we tried multiple different things, uh, uh, but uh, we didn't really have a we, ha we didn't really have a good, I would say, in retrospect, a very value based pricing. It was more like okay, it costs us X to serve, so maybe Y is what or X plus five is what we should essentially charge, and that's kind of how we started pricing it. And um, did you need funds to build this? Uh, I mean, you you were not a programmer, right? Was uh, Ravi a programmer? Really? Yes, he was. Okay. He was. Okay. He's, a, okay. he's, a, he's a brilliant product mind, and he's basically the architect of the product. Um, mm. Yes, we did. We did raise some angel funding. We put our own money uh, into the company. Uh, we raised some angel funding, but you know, ten years back, uh, the money was not as as easily available as it is yeah. right now. Yeah. So right. I think we raised them 30 lakhs and, you know, we ran the company for about two years. Then it is about four or five crores from Axel and Mumbai Angels, et cetera, and Bloom, et cetera. And then continue pursuing that idea and did that, <clears throat> did that for about, yeah, almost a decade where we ran, ran through multiple ideas, multiple products, didn't really see them scale, but we were very frugal. Uh, which is what really helped us, which is we kept our head down, kept trying ideas, started generating some basic amount of cash. And some total we had raised a little over $2 million, uh, sorry, $3 million. And with that $3 million, we ran the company for about a decade. Wow. Uh, uh, well, when did your uh, product go live? Uh, 2009 you started, right? Uh, Correct. Two thousand. I think it's there's two avatars. Like two thousand nine to two thousand nineteen is when basically we ran Mobstack, and then kind of when we 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 kind of chanced upon what we call Beacon Stack right now, which is really scaled. Uh, but yes, two thousand nine to nineteen was Mobstack, and we 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 uh, we funded so your go to market etc. Happened in nine itself, or it took you a year or two before you started. I would, I would I would say we took about eighteen months, uh, uh, sorry, about twelve months uh, to basically, uh, you know, get the product in place, etc. Then we thought mm. we'll start hitting the large publishers. We started hitting the publishers once we and you were leading sales. Yeah, correct, correct, correct. Okay. It's all okay. it's all through friends and family. You basically reach out to whoever you can try to reach out to a very unstructured way. Um, start getting original sales, etc. Obviously, one of the things learnings you also have right at the beginning is that um, that it is 
when you ask people do you like this product everybody in usual original feedback will say yeah yeah this is awesome but you know you can ask <laughs> if you if you don't ask very specific questions about you know will you pay for it how much will you actually pay for it which i think we we never asked you realize the hard way that you know people might like it but they might not necessarily pay for it or might not necessarily pay as much as you think it is so those are all lessons that we learned very early on and we realized that you know uh, publishers were a were a, were a bleeding lot like they were struggling they were trying to they were very highly disrupted by web itself they were still figuring that out so now thinking about mobile etc is a lot harder and so the target industry that we were chasing was itself a pretty bad industry to begin with and that's kind of a larger realization more than anything else okay uh, so this uh, product of powering the mobile sites yeah. uh, this was your primary product for the entire decade of uh, 9 to 19 or or like w- what other experiments did you run then um i think uh, i think we we did that for about 6 years or so or 6 7 mm-hmm. years and what was the peak revenue you were getting from that product i think uh i think he basically uh i think we had a peak revenue of maybe a few crores single digit annual. crores yeah annual that's it okay. um, okay. uh, maybe 4 5 crores i would say not not really more okay. than that and okay that's kind of where we kind of plateaued we didn't really okay. we, were, we didn't really kind of grow beyond that um and we also realized it was really hard we were burning i, I mean it's also really important to understand that when you start building a saas product or a software service product there has to be a certain amount of productization in that in the sense that if it was basically being what we realized up the sir apart from the industry that we are catering to the challenge we also had is everybody needed some element of customization for it it which is not a box product that can be really sold out of the box and if that was the case then you start drawing a line where you know this becomes like a literally literally like a services and when the services then the cost of delivering that will gets even more expensive and then it just doesn't just justify the amount of money that you are essentially getting paid so those are all you know what what i call learnings as you as you kind of mature as an entrepreneur and mm-hmm. so okay. we, we kind of moved out of publishing our, our, our yeah. then the question that we asked ourselves is basically uh the the question we had uh, we asked ourselves at that time was look this mobile content consumption is happening i mean people are trying to do it in their own way clearly it looks like there is there is not that that trend is working fine but it's not really something that we can generate a lot of revenue or people not able to generate a lot of revenue so what is the next larger uh you know trend that we are seeing that we can capitalize on both ravi and i are very passionate on mobile and you know the fact that mobile can play a big disrupt uh, can be very disruptive so what we essentially realized is that you know if you just take the just the progress of how web worked and how mobile will evolve people are consuming content then they were essentially consuming com- commerce and the next natural part we believed was how does a mobile engage with the physical world around you that's really how it started so 
uh, we said, okay, the mobile device has to play, will essentially becomes the center of your physical world. Right? It's not just a primary internet device, but it becomes the center of the physical world. If that is the case, then how does how do you basically help brands and businesses engage with the physical world around you with the consumer? That's that's kind of the problem statement we kind of defined. Started that down that path, and that's where we started with Bluetooth beacons, etc. Tried a bunch of different products. Uh, again, then tried tried using Wi-Fi as 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 another technology. Because what we essentially said is, in the on the mobile device, there are multiple technologies available: Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, geofencing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and that uh, enabled you to be able to connect to the physical world. Which of these technologies will make sense? So we went down one technology after the other, and long story short, that's kind of how we eventually down the line we basically uh, came down with a product like Beacon Stack, which kind of started showing traction, and we kind of grew the product from there what was the use case you were solving it for so i mean you you have this broad uh take that uh, mobile will be used more in the physical world as well but was there a specific use case what, what was the problem you were solving through the bluetooth and the wi-fi uh thingies which you were experimenting with like this? i think two three things one is we realized that brands love the Brands love the idea of connecting the physical world and digital world. There's a handoff that has to happen. That handoff doesn't really happen right now. Uh, so this whole concept of omni-channel, which everybody is kind of beaten beaten to death over the last 20 years, the truth is it is not as omni-channel as they expected. Right? There is a lot of challenges around it. That's one. The second thing is, I think, in terms of marketing spends also, in the offline world or in the physical world, uh, when you spend money, you don't have clear ROI just like you have in the digital world, right? Because in the digital world, what happens is that you spend $100, so everybody knows you've driven this much traffic. In the physical world, you don't know. So is there a better way in which you can drive better attribution on the spends in the physical world? That's uh, the second reason. Um, and I think third, broadly speaking, I think there's a whole, whole player on data, which I think was is and was very exciting even five years ago. The whole data is going to make a big difference. How do I help you collect data? Um, there's so much data collection that happens in, in the digital world. In the physical world, really, there is very limited understanding, etc. So can we enable using some of these technologies help brands and businesses, and by that extension, consumers learn more about their preferences, etc. So I think we are kind of kind of marrying all these things in, in a way and trying to figure out the right product market fit that can help us scale. And what's an example of this, like uh, collecting data, the handoff from digital to physical, like uh, so, an example of how it would actually help a brand? So I think, um, so I can give an example of how BeaconStack works right now, right? Uh, BeaconStack is, uh, helps with, uh, like right now we essentially use QR codes, but the truth is you can use any kind of technology to, to be able to trigger that. So for example, if you have, uh, uh, a Nestle water bottle, and uh, and, and uh, or a Starbucks coffee, whatever. And there's a QR code on that, and you take your mobile device and scan the QR code, and it will essentially open up depending on what they want to do. Either they'll say there's an offer here, or they'll say something about how 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 amazing this coffee is, or this 
water bottle is or where this water or this factor is plastic or recycled. It could be multiple things. Now, what really happens there is you won't know that this is Akshay. You won't know that this is a product that uh, this this device belongs to Akshay. But I know that this is a device that really has interacted with a Starbucks QR code or with a or to a or Nestle water bottle QR code. So when you open that page, you can essentially access. You can drop cookies. You can drop and 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 essentially retarget those those uh, same uh, cookies using the same cookies online. So technically, if you want, you can see a Starbucks ad or a Nestle Nestle ad on Facebook or Google, etc. So that is that is basically how you kind of build what I call digital cohorts based on interactions in the physical world. So that's how you kind of pass the interaction and the and the transfer of you know what what you're doing in the real world is being transferred to a digital identity online okay fascinating um I, i'm assuming the uh, conversion rate would be pretty low right like if there is 100 starbucks cups which have qr code printed on it maybe 5 or 10 people would actually go ahead and scan yeah i, I mean Yes, yes, uh, but broadly speaking, that's that's one of the what do you call one of the uh, one of the use cases that I basically explain. But I think it all depends on essentially what the use case is. Uh, that's one. Two, also, I think with any advertising medium, that is usually the case. If you have a pretty large hoarding on the busiest road. there are only a few people who are who are driving by or going to see it it's not like everybody is going to see it so i think there is That's a fraction true. fractional value attached to any uh, ad impression etc but it also depends on you know what the contextuality is and what he really trying to do there okay so when use cases uh, you create a engagement layer on uh, a physical experience and that gives you data which allows you to retarget that customer with more customized uh, advertisement uh, w- what are the other use cases so i think if you look at if you if you look at uh, what we do at beacon stack i think they can come into three broad strokes one is driving engagement like i just explained the second is is around simply data collection in different ways i mean whatever your primary purpose is you you can drive data in, in in different ways the third and most uh, the third part of bucket which is growing for us is and which is where the total addressable market is very huge is that in many ways qr codes are replacing the physicality of paper right wherever there is physical paper available right menu cards are replaced by qr codes business cards are being replaced by qr code enabled digital business cards uh, documentation and marketing collateral is being replaced by qr codes and uh, vaccine certificates are being replaced by qr codes so wherever you can the physicality of paper being replaced by a qr code and that 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 uh, is not only highly beneficial to brands and businesses because the it makes it very seamless it actually saves a tremendous amount of cost in in printing material paper etc and third and most importantly it making the world uh, the world a little more environmentally sustainable because you're just saving our trees i think there is so those are the broad strokes i think the power of what we're really trying to do is that qr codes are very pervasive 
in the sense that you know every day people are discovering new use cases even now every day we listen to calls customer demos and i'm fascinated by the use cases that people are coming up with right and uh, and those are all things that they are discovering themselves and it's a little bit like email marketing right email started as fundamentally started as a communication tool with peer to peer then you had very robust platforms like uh, mailchimp and sendgrid essentially come along and democratize email marketing and convert that into a very powerful communication or engagement platform for businesses that's exactly what we are doing qr code was just a point thing where which enabled and captured information that could be shared from there now a platform like ours helps brands and businesses convert that into something very substantial and meaningful and we are doing that at, at scale and focused on large businesses okay okay um give me an example of the second use case uh, data collection um data collection is 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 two ways one is personal item fiber information uh, and the other is just cookie data first party data as it's called which is um, first party data is like what i already mentioned you know i drop a cookie every time you open essentially a page yeah. and retarget etc that's first party data pia is more like identifiable information you basically scan a qr code on on a box of cookies that you bought from some bespoke store that you really like and that person says did you enjoy the cookies can the qr code and join our newsletter or do this and i'll drop another cookie okay. etc you share an email address mm. you share your phone number or you to put a qr code in, a, in in the us a lot of open houses or real estate they put a qr code outside and say if you're interested in seeing this house can the qr code fill this form i'll reach contact you and do regeneration so things like that which basically any which which okay. which could happen physically in the past would now happen digitally hmm. got it uh, okay okay interesting and uh, what about uh, so replacement of paper i understand like replacing a menu card um what is uh, what is the beaconstack platform do like would it uh, host the ordering system also or would it just create a qr code which directs people to a link and uh, that's it um so i think a couple of different things uh, we are not focused only on restaurants that's not a use case we are a horizontal stack so that means we have businesses of various sizes and shapes using us we have industries across we have fnb we have real estate we have financial services we have cpg we have pharma hospital etc and as you can see because it's a qr code marketing and engagement platform we this is what we call a digital customer engagement platform physical to digital right and digital customer engagement platform sky is the limit in terms of use cases and basically every industry vertical has some use case here right um, so what we have essentially built is a robust platform which does three things one is basically it helps you create and generate qr codes and manage them at scale if you have one qr code that's one thing but if you have 1000 qr codes you have to be able to manage all these the second thing is this is not just what is we also help you manage the end destination so you want to you know you want to create a microsite you want to create a form you want to basically create a social media whatever the end result might be all that can be we have a robust content management system so you can essentially create that inside the cms itself so it's a very visible editor so you don't need to be a developer to do it you can a marketer can essentially do it 
a knob Skype can really do it without the need of actually a developer doing it. Um, so that's the second part. And the third part, I think, is just a lot of analytics on where the engagement is and what is really working, right? You put you put QR codes in three different places on a packaging in a, in a physical location and in some some somewhere else. Uh, you will be able to capture information and see where are scans happening, what time of the day are they happening, is is there any merit in you know? You will get a better sense for where where is the actual engagement happening versus right now the whole physical is one entire is completely one channel. You don't have better clarity and nuance nuanced understanding of you know what is working where. So the. Uh... Like the data about uh, where it's happening, etc., that comes from like device analytics when uh, someone where the scan, the QR yeah. Code that... yeah, where the engagement happens, right? Where the scan happens or the tap mm-hmm. happens, yes, that's kind of where we uh, we we basically decide that, and we capture a lot of analytics in the background. And because of these are all dynamic QR codes, even after the scan, QR code has been created and pasted on a bottle or on a package. Even after that, depending on time of the day, day of the week, the, the, the QR code can keep pointing to different destinations. And that's that's, okay. that's what makes it very powerful. Okay, 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 okay. So it's like a programmable QR code. Uh, it doesn't need to have a static link. It, it can Correct. There can be a rule-based rule engine which tells you where to direct. Uh, absolutely. We do have a rule-based engine that I know. That's amazing it. amazing okay okay so uh, at a simplistic level i guess it could have started like say you have this url shortening services uh, which take a long url shorten it so that you can print it easily and distribute it and people can visit it easily that that would have been i'm guessing like the first version of the product uh, Absol- absolutely in, in fact uh, it's interesting that they say that because our largest competitor is a company that got acquired by bitly yeah. Okay. 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 Uh, and and so. that's exactly the same. And the way I explain that is, if you look at a URL or a or a Bitly or a short URL, the short URL is basically the call to action in the digital world, and QR codes are yes. essentially becoming the call to action in the physical world. So there's a good marriage yes. there. And so what we are Beacon Stack opt goal is basically to become the call to action in the physical world. Our idea is to drive engagement from all your physical products and uh, places. Hmm. I'm wondering, um, you know, when you did the uh, the mobile rendering engine for uh, publishers, uh, you eventually discovered that no. uh, this was not a, this was not a enough value adding for you to monetize it well. I guess today the native CMS platforms have that facility inbuilt. You don't need a separate facility. Um, could something similar happen here? For example, Google Forms uh, allows you to create a QR code to share the form instead of that. And, you know, all products, I mean, if it becomes, let's say MailChimp allows you to create a QR code with your landing page and so on. All these marketing uh, stack uh, products can build it as a native feature and thereby remove the need for a beacon stack to exist. I think so. I think. Uh... I mean, you can never say that you'll be the most unique person in the market and there's nothing else. Uh, I've always learned the hard way that no competition usually means no market. Uh, so it's good to have competition. <laughs> that's, that's a nice one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's usually very healthy to have competition. 
and i think there is a, there is a need for uh, competing products to exist i think but we have a very unique proposition and 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 i think what we are also seeing right now is that uh, the qr codes are very pervasive in the way that they are essentially being used and our largest strategy right now is to basically see how we can use some of these use cases and productize them further and add a lot more value which makes it irreplaceable uh and what we are seeing right now is that there are specific uh, the industries that basically are using it is are are across the spectrum right that's one and the two the thing is even inside one specific industry or in sorry inside one specific company the use cases are uh, are are humongous across marketing across operations across sales across tech uh, events whatever so instead of having each individual team essentially run their own qr code marketing services most large companies are moving in the direction of we want one company to essentially streamline this and manage this at scale and that's really how we think we will be will continue to kind of drive and dominate this market because we'll essentially be kind of sort of you know managing and um, being becoming a central repository or the command con- command center for all things qr whether it's ops whether it's uh, admin whether it's marketing whether it's sales or something else so uh, why didn't the bluetooth wifi experiments work what, what made you realize qr is the way to do this um there's a lot of friction from a consumer adoption standpoint i think the only one reason it fails it's consumers don't like it you can't push and shove and make them do it the beauty about software selling software unlike consumer products is that in 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 consumer products you can basically buy product market fit right you can just keep giving a lot of discounts and say here is a new popcorn i've discovered which has is very tasty or you don't like it okay i'll give it to you free of cost or i'll give it 10 rupees <laughs> and and burn a lot of capital money and and then get it i could offer okay. my software free of cost nobody's going to take it right so who's going to take right, it just right, because right. so yeah. the beauty of software is there you can't lie much or you can't fool yourself that too long eventually the, the reality will catch up with you so the point i'm essentially making for is that there are multiple use cases and we kind of if you keep yourself honest to those use cases you will be able to kind of build a pretty sustainable business and that's really what we're doing okay okay like how did the wifi and the bluetooth thing work like there would be some uh yeah so what happened in bluetooth and wifi use case was that the tech, the friction to the techno the consumer adoption was very hard like bluetooth you have to turn on the bluetooth headset uh, sorry you have to turn on the bluetooth on your phone there is this general right, right, consensus right, yeah. that way it will drain your battery which maybe 10 year old 10 years ago the device it it, it really mattered now they don't but they, that there's that overarching feeling that that's what will happen and for bluetooth and wifi they what they call what are called um, pull technologies which means you need to actually have an app on your device to be able to engage these technologies as a brand oh, as, okay. as as starbucks has to, if a starbucks has to engage you will need to have a starbucks app or a or a app that starbucks has partnered with which enables you to basically do what needs to be done otherwise it will not work right uh, yeah. whereas nfc and qr are what are called push which means you expect the consumer to take action based on if they have interest so there's no sense of spamming 
right? If Akshay wants to be able to tap or scan a QR code or tap an NFC tag to learn more about that specific product or location, he will do it. And that's really how uh, it was very obvious after a few years of experimentation that that people don't really like that uh, that friction of having an app and driving it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. Whereas if you make this con- let the consumer decide if they want to tap and learn more, then that's so be it. And that's kind of what even the mobile device companies learned, right? That based on all these experiences, uh, if you just enable people to just randomly sell notifications just because they walked by a store, it's spam. Brands won't like it. Consumers won't like it. And that's how the operating systems, Apple and Android decided, okay, let's double down QR codes. And because they are the technologies which seems very seamless, frictionless, uh, no cost because there's no new additional hardware, hardware. There's no spam, uh, you know, and, and, and you get enough data on everything and more that you essentially ask for. And that's the reason why what QR and Wi-Fi could not do, uh, sorry, Wi-Fi Bluetooth could not do, QR was able to do. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, what was your go-to market for this? Uh, who were your first customers? And uh, so first, tell me that journey. For QR codes, uh, Beacon Stack? Yeah, yeah, for Beacon Stack, yeah. So we've been a very inbound and SEO-led company. That means we are very focused on looking at uh, search uh, search, uh, search results and looking at who is searching for what, etc. The reason for that is very simple. The cost to customer acquisition is very, very low in- inbound. So the first, uh, we started this in 2019 and over the last four years, we've kind of built this and uh, we, we Till we raised only we raised CDC funding this in the beginning of this year, but uh, despite that, in the last four years we've basically been cash flow positive, and we've been able to do that because wow. customer acquisition costs are very low, and the reason customer acquisition costs are very low is because we focused on inbound and product-led growth as uh, very strong motions. What? How do you make uh, product-led growth work? And just tell me, like, you know, what, what were your learnings from this, which would help other founders to do replicate what you did here? I think product-led growth is basically, again, it might not necessarily work for every software stack that you're really selling, but I do, I do think there is some version of what you're selling that might be, if not the whole thing, at least a version of it that might be worthwhile. I think the intent of product-led growth, if you look at it, the philosophy fundamentally believes that in the past, in the last 30 years of software existing, uh, software has been sold top-down. You sell to the CEO, you sell to the CTO, you see, you sell to the chief product officer, and he or she will basically decide, and this just makes sense. I think when, when open source developers started kind of building and choosing and making a decision on what software has to be da- used, it kind of moved the power back to the bottom of the pyramid, right? So product-led growth is basically the philosophy that you can put a sliver of the product, if not the whole robust product, at least a small part of that product, in the hands of uh, of, uh, of of people who are maybe in entry-level roles, maybe in marketing, maybe in operations, maybe in engineering, or maybe in product, where you tell them to get started with that product. And once you get started with that product, you can essentially continue to... Uh, Utilize the product in a small way and so that uh, paying a small amount of money so that eventually when it gets to, it bubbles up all the way up, up and then it becomes a much larger contract, right? So it's a it's the reverse of how sales and software sales has been done in the That's the philosophy of product-led growth. 
and i think there there is there is strong merit in doing that obviously there are cases in which it's not applicable depending on what you're selling but i think in most cases either as a as a go to market to kind of drive visibility or eventually to drive sales itself product led growth can work quite efficiently depending on what you're selling okay so how did you implement it like you would give certain number of qr codes for free uh Correct. So there is uh, something uh, like what Mailchimp would have done. Like correct, correct. So we we we've, we've always been very strongly focused on uh, product led growth. We also have a very strong inbound motion. That is, we've always written high quality content around how does uh, whatever the topic might be on various specific things that draw a lot of traffic to our site because it draw a lot of traffic to our site. We were able to say, do you want to try this fourteen day trial on this product, and you can pay us. as low as $5 a month to all the way up to $19 a month and that's 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 really how they started uh, utilizing it and because they started utilizing it the uh, customers basically we started realizing that it's not just small and medium businesses that are using this small plans even small teams or individuals inside large companies are using these plans because they have tactical use cases but those are use cases that you can essentially use to leverage to kind of move them up the value chain and make them pay more and that's kind of the journey that you're on right now because you start with a small amount of money that person is spending $500 a year with you how do you get them to charge, charge spend $5000 a year with you how do you spend get that person to just spend $50000 with you how do you make that person spend $500000 with you that is a question of two things one is actually building the depth of the product where the value is uh, commensurate with 5000 50000 500000 and building mechanisms and instrumentation that allows people to be able to measure that value and push them in that direction all in a very automated fashion we have 50000 paying customers it's not like each person can be sent an email uh, or sorry called and told them like look you have crossed that it, you have to instrument all that you have to automate all that and in this damage everything can be automated so that's 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 the plg motion amazing amazing okay like like you would create milestones and nudges and people who cross a certain milestone would receive a nudge and absolutely. try out some additional feature absolutely. and so on and so forth uh, absolutely and and i think I, i also think it's really important to see once you start operating at scale what happens is you can start looking at cohorts you know you can say these are the people who are in cpg brands or or as it's called fmcg in india fmcg brands uh, are doing these are the five things that they're doing on average so when you have a fmcg brand join you and with with one specific use case in mind then essentially uh, you can tell them hey your peers are doing three other things or four other things so helping them scale their use cases and as they scale their use cases they will spend more money with us okay okay amazing so i i guess you, you would be somewhere in like uh, comparable to a mailchimp in terms of the the way in which you are selling this yes. like a pure uh, inbound product led uh, and like a product which appeals to both uh, a team of two people as well as a company which has let's say 20000 people yeah Yep. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, Mailchimp. Yeah, Mailchimp is a very good example. Um, uh, I think Mailchimp. So, if you are in product-led growth motion, I think it would be either 
I mean, this whole concept of uh, there's a lot of literature on on how to build product like growth motions. And I think if you're a SaaS founder, uh, it, uh, if you're just getting started, it's worthwhile reading more about product-led growth motion. Um, I think there is there is there are different philosophies for how you let them try a product. There is freemium, there is free trial, there is reverse trial, et cetera, et cetera. And all these different things will allow allow you to do it. So Mailchimp, for example, is freemium, whereas Beacon Stack is free trial. That means for 14 days you try the product, and then you essentially in those 14 days, you have to make a decision whether you want to buy or not. Whereas Mailchimp will allow freemium, which means there is a free forever kind of a plan which you can sit on for any long amount of time you want. But eventually, when your demand or your need increases, you will eventually start paying for uh, Mailchimp. What made you choose free trial over freemium? The beauty about that, mostly driven by cash. You were bootstrapped, yeah, we, were, okay. we, we were very frugal, we were running off our own cash flows. We had not raised any more funding. Like I said, for 10 years, you we were just doing this on top of our own cash flow. So we said we will not, we will take all the money up front. So we had only annual plans. And we basically said we will focus only on uh, on, on free trial instead of freemium, which will, fo- which will push people in the direction of uh, this one. That's one. The second thing also, I think it, dep- it depends on how people are thinking about it. We are in early days of a new vertical. We are not not building a product for which a, exist, a vertical exists. So what I mean by that is CRM as a, as a software has existed for like 20 years right now. Many people are building different kinds of CRM, but I think everybody understands what a CRM is. So if you are building a CRM, uh, I, I think there is merit in there is a certain level of clarity that that you have and how to build it. So to be a differentiator, you want to offer a freemium solution. In our case, what's happening is it's a new vertical. People are just getting started in understanding it. So there is uh, and and there is a tendency for if you do not push them to start utilizing, uh, you, they will kind of there is there's a tendency not to use the product. But when you start paying for the product, the probability that you will use it is much higher. So however small the amount is, right? If I give you Netflix free of cost, I don't know how much you'll watch. Maybe bad analogy, but still uh, run with it. Uh, But if you're paying some amount of it, non-zero, the value in your eyes goes up significantly. So you will start fidgeting with it, trying to figure out what's the best I can extract out of it. So there was some of that philosophy that we had, we had implemented. Of course, it has its own downsides to it. I'm just highlighting the upsides. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's worked quite well for us. That, that is such a counterintuitive philosophy that yeah. when you're creating a category, you need to uh, not go freemium, but you need to push people to pay so that they use it. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that uh, you did not understand value-based pricing when you were doing the first product of the uh, mobile rendering for publishers. Uh, how has your understanding of value-based pricing evolved? Uh, how do you do pricing now? Uh, I think it's still a learning curve. The reality is I'm, I'm still... I'm still working hard hard to understand it. I think the important thing about pricing and packaging is that it's first it's it's a it's a dynamic piece. What worked for you is 
six years or six months ago might not necessarily work for you today. So you have to understand the nature of the market and what people want. The second thing I think it's really important to understand is basically the atomic unit or the lever on what people are pay, ready to pay you more for, right? Everything there is for a for every product there is an atomic unit based on which you will pay more. Is that number of logins, number of users, now amount of content, catalog, whatever? Like go if you're playing with the Netflix example. Right and and as that that with as you understand that lever and that atomic unit, you will basically be able to start focusing on how to build your product and how to build a value to your end user, right? Um, so I think pricing is 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 definitely a science. To begin with, you might it might be a little bit of an art because you especially if you're kind of building a new vertical because you were flying blind, you don't know how much value you're adding. But as you start adding more and more customers, it very can quickly become can be distilled down into a value-based science, and that's really what we're doing right now, which is very close, paying very close attention to what people are using, and then trying to evaluate whether every every few weeks we out iterate and see, okay, if you move this feature from this plan to that plan, will this go down? Will that go up? And it's a lot of A/B testing, and that that gives you very clear indicators of what's working and what's not. Give me some examples of uh, like what's like an atomic unit for you. Is it number of QR codes generated, or uh, you know some more beacon stack examples uh, on pricing? Yeah. Uh, for us, it's quite obvious. Like any of these use cases, uh, I mean, number of QR codes, number of users, uh, the, uh, the you know number of uh, scans, uh, the number of uh, uh, you know uh, the number of kinds of QR codes that you can use. There are several different uh, permutations and combinations that we've essentially used, right? We are also realizing that uh, obviously the important thing to keep in mind is we are a horizontal stack. That means we have the the downside and the upside of the fa- uh, of the fact that we have a very broad ICP, like like small business users, large enterprise users, people in marketing users, people in operations users, people. Uh, you know, executives users, entry-level folks users. So the challenge with that is we are right now working hard on trying to identify what, what really works for us. So that's that's something that we're really working on, but uh, it's not obviously answering your specific question because I, I think it's still a discovery phase for us. So it's very hard for me to say this is exactly the way pricing worked. I know that in the past, it just number of QR codes was the only determining step but now as people realize and as the market gets mature that might not necessarily be the only unit atomic unit or the lever for driving uh, growth for us what are uh, some of the other uh, like you know growth engineering you've done around let's say improving retention or uh, improving the ltv for the long term value for uh, users who have signed up I think a lot of our entire acquisition strategy has been inbound. And for us to do inbound, we essentially do is we we listen to every call, we listen to every demo. We use uh, our entire, it's not just our sales team that uses to listen to demo, even our marketing team does. does. And when our marketing team listens, 
they were they pay very close attention to the u words and the phrases that the the prospective customers use to explain what their problem is you take that content and then create content around it right and that essentially it drives more and more traffic to us and, and more traffic means more people and more people means more content and that's a positive reinforcing loop and that's worked extraordinarily well for us amazing amazing okay and what about things like retention rate and stuff like that like what kind of retention rate do you see and are you doing some so our churn uh, is our churn is one of the lowest in in for any saas benchmark i mean it's like half a percent which is outrageously low wow and uh, there are uh, there are several reasons for that i think one of them is that we are a sticky product in general uh because we of what we do it's very hard to kind of pull when you when you replace put qr codes and put stuck qr codes on packaging on locations wherever the use case might be there's a lot of interesting use cases the second thing is like i said it's an it's an emerging market everyday people come up with new use cases there's a lot of experimentation that's being done i think we are doing a pretty good job in explaining to customers on here are three things you have done and here are five more things you can do with it so even though the person has originally come with one specific use case in mind that might or might not have worked they're always excited to the prospect of working with this two or three or four or five use cases that we are teaching them so there is this continuous work in progress which people are realizing and it's very horizontal like you can imagine like as i talk in your own head you will re- think of oh maybe i should use qr codes for this now i've not thought of it but this is how i can think out of it and that's the power of what we do mm, amazing um why are there sales calls happening when uh, you have like a free trial and like like you know is there a way in which you decide okay for certain type of businesses or customers we will have a physical like a physical as in a, a human sales effort and for others it will be pure product led so we have enterprise customers so that means after self service uh, uh beyond 99 1000 we have enterprise plans which are for our customer mid market and enterprise uh, band so we essentially there and at those uh, at that level basically we have sales reps who basically call and talk to them these are start at $10,000 to $100,000 ACVs they pay us $10,000 to $100,000 uh, per year so for those people we essentially call uh, or they schedule demos etc and this also happens through some inbound like there would first be some interest and then Yeah, it's all hundred percent inbound. We don't have an outbound motion yet. It's something we have to build, but Amazing. we don't have anything right now. Okay, okay. Yeah. Who's your competition in this space? Like you mentioned, one of them was acquired by Bitly. I think that's the primary competitor. I mean, we have other small, 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 small competitions, but I think the only competitor, the large competitor we have, is Bitly. Okay, okay. And how do you? Uh, how did you go global in terms of your sales uh, was there something specific you did or it's just that you were reliant on inbound and the inbound started coming from all over the world and, and like right now what's your split like how much of your revenue is from india how much is from outside india is negligible to non existent uh, north of 90% wow. comes from north america as i've said in an okay. interview i've taken i've done it's better to earn a dollar than a rupee it's easier to earn <laughs> not, not not my quote right. but uh, i've stolen that quote from someone yeah. else i think i heard it somewhere but that's yeah. the truth yeah. selling software in yeah. india is very hard uh, it's very very hard in india people don't understand the value of it and it's not worth it 
uh, America is is obviously much bigger, larger, etc. etc. For all the obvious reasons, I think it's much easier to sell there. Um, I think we also Ravi and I have lived in the U.S. New York is like second home, so we've been very comfortable in under our skin to kind of sell in North America. But either way, if you are and and third and most important, I think is that Americans, I think because of the history of software of our early adopters, they are okay with the idea of experimenting and trying something new. You will not. uh you will not get that in other parts of the world that easily so if you're trying to do something for the first time it's always helpful to reach and try to sell that in north america of course there are some fantastic examples of saas companies being built out of india focusing on the indian market and southeast asian market etc etc and kudos to them for doing what they're doing but i personally think selling to north america is efficient and and the roi on that is lot more powerful lot more efficient uh, significant when did you reach this conclusion because the previous version mobstack was largely selling to indian publishers right correct i think that's where i learned okay okay, <laughs> okay. you you tried selling to publishers abroad also like in the us no i think i think twofold one is basically it also depends on product dna uh, sorry founder dna uh one is yes this understanding this differentiation dif- differentiation between indian and us uh, trying to sell to indian customers or us customers i think over the last 7 to 8 years i think since freshworks went public etc there's obviously a a strong uh, understanding of transport of saas and there's like a cottage industry of transport of saas companies emerging out of india so there is enough literature and playbooks available which explains in how you build an indian SaaS company focusing on North American markets. So that's one. The second thing I think is the fact that um, I think when I talked about founder DNA, if you're a very sales-led more, if you're a, I think my co-founder is a very strong product guy, and naturally I think product and marketing comes to me a lot more naturally than sales. And I, I think when you think about a product and marketing sales, uh, marketing-led motion. which is the plg motion it's it it is na- then essentially you're saying the web is where i'm going to sell it and when you say web is the way you're going to sell it it doesn't matter whether the customer is in india or in the united states you're essentially selling it to someone who's browsing on the net so when you start looking at it from that standpoint it just seems like us is a much bigger advantage of course if you're a if you're if your dna is that of selling and you're a strong sales guy you have the ability to kind of go pitch and make a sale in person to someone then i can see why there is strong merits and advantages in selling to indian uh, companies etc and why some comp- some people start selling in their indian market uh, rather than the us market two is that you are built a product with all, again uh, with uh, with all due respect i don't mean it in a derogatory way if you are trying to build a product which for which already lots of similar players are there you're just building a product which is cheaper and more com- more competitively priced than a- an american product that already exists there's a lot of competition in that side of the world for this so i you as well take that product which might have similar similar amount of value but priced more competitively uh 
you want to sell in India because Indians are very cost-conscious individuals, so they will take a cheaper product, and that's how the reason to sell in India versus the US. Mm. Okay, okay, got it. Interesting. Uh, tell me about uh, scaling uh, the organization. What's your headcount today, and what are some of the things you learned about building an organization? Oh, that's that's still a work in progress. We're a little over hundred people right now. Um, okay. And uh, we have an office in uh, New York, and we have an office in Bangalore. Product marketing, engineering, etc. Uh, India, I shuttle, uh, uh, sales, customer success, uh, finance, strategy, all that sits out of uh, New York. And uh, yeah, I think I, I, I think it's hard to say that uh, what has worked and what has not. We're still in early days, but I think we thrive on good company culture like and it's i don't want to give you some lip service as every ceo does on how great our culture, <laughs> how great our culture is <laughs> but if you if you if you look at glassdoor reviews you'll have a good idea why people enjoy working for us and why we are rated as we are rated there yeah but what's the secret behind it why are you so highly rated on glassdoor we're rated very highly on Glassdoor because we fundamentally believe in hiring very good people and getting out of the way. We fundamentally, uh, 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 I basically say only two things when every employee joins. And I say, I can assure you of two things here. The rest of it is up to you. One is you learn a lot. And two, you'll meet incredibly nice people. Uh, and those are things which are not negotiable for me. Right? Um, everything else is fine. So we we very high on will versus skill. We very we're very focused on looking at intent rather than what you know. It's about where you want to go. But that 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 drives trajectory and that drives a belief system. Um, I also think that life is too short to be surrounded by smart asses. So I, we don't hire people who we who who we think <laughs> are, might be really good, but might be painful to might be toxic to our culture. Um, I also think, finally, if there is one secret sauce, I think we have a very empowered interviewing process. We have four people meeting every, at least four people meeting every new hire. Each, and those four people could be any designation, any level. We choose a team that hires them. And each of them have one vote. It doesn't matter who they are. So there are many times I've walked into an interview setting where I have voted for the person saying we should hire, but maybe a, someone who is much more, ju- more junior, a junior might have said no, and then it's a no, it's a veto. Uh, that builds a very responsible culture. Everybody takes high, tremendous amount of responsibility that she has brought or he has brought in that particular individual, and they have voted for that person. Uh, they feel like they have a say in, in, in essentially increasing the size of the tribe. And that brings a certain summer sense of commitment to the organization. And if there's one thing that's worked for us in building a good, good culture, it's that I don't make top-down decisions on we should hire this person, we should fire this person. It's all very collectively done. Okay. So um, uh, is there a use case of AI in your product, you know, like that's like the flavor of the season and every company is uh, incorporating generative AI and LLMs. Uh, it, is there something which uh, 
as a use case. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there is. Is it is it high on my radar? Absolutely not. Uh, again, it's it's. I might be a minority in CEOs are saying no because everybody else seems looks like that's, that's the only thing they seem to be doing on LinkedIn, writing about how great AI is. Uh, I, yeah, I personally okay. think that yes, there is, there is, I think we are definitely in the midst of a transformative technology, which will fundamentally change many businesses and many of uh, work, uh, workflows around how uh, product is built or a software is built. There's no doubt about it. There are many roles that will get really disrupted. Uh, with respect to Beacon Stack, we're still in very initial phase of kind of uh, doing a zero to one. There are some basic experiments that we are doing around understanding that's a little more. I think it's too early for me to comment on this is what we think will happen to the market, to the industry, or specifically with respect to the product itself. Okay. Uh, well, what's your ARR sure. right now? Yeah, yeah sure. a little over 10 million. Amazing. Amazing. So what's the, uh, like, you know, what do, what do the next couple of years look like, uh, both in terms of what you want to do on the product side, how you want to scale up your uh, customer acquisition? I think, um, I think we're continuing to grow despite the macro being pretty bad. I think, our churn is very low. We continue to grow. So I think there are a lot of positives in terms of how we grow, uh, how we've been growing. Uh, and I also think that we have a pretty healthy set of uh, customers, which which has been helping us. Uh, right now, I think uh, the the core the core focus is for us to kind of zone in our product strategy and kind of understand, you know, how we can add more value to to a set of customers that we think will be very important. Uh, we are also paying a lot of attention to the kinds of use cases that are emerging on the horizon. So I think the question we, uh, the the question that we have to ask ourselves is, you know, what are products that we will build versus product which we will open up the platform where we will enable anyone else to come build on top of us, right? Because the use cases are so broad and so interesting that the question that we have to be able to answer is what are things that we will be able to productize how we will essentially be able to kind of you know build more depth on and similarly uh, as other people discover new ideas can we kind of provide them the building blocks that will help them come and build their own QR enabled or QR empowered strategy. And that's kind of what I'm putting pieces of that together right now. So like an uh, app marketplace, like say Salesforce has like an app marketplace. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. 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 Amazing. Amazing. Okay. 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 So my last question to you, uh, what's your advice for young aspiring founders? Oh, young aspiring founders. It's what I say to anyone, which is uh, there's, a, there's a Shakespeare quote which says, what's past is prologue. It essentially means that whatever you've done so far is setting you the setting up a stage for what you're going to do in the future. So don't worry so much about, you know, uh, uh, 
don't give up so easily actually that's that's the it takes a while to get to get to get to where you are um it it takes a significant amount of effort to discover what's right uh and so be persistent that's one which is goes without saying the second thing which i'll say which i think any might or might not agree is that entrepreneurs are overrated there is there is obviously a lot of blood sweat and tears and i have tremendous respect to my other peers and i've been that at this for a decade so you cannot come you cannot say i'm not persistent so i am persistent but that's not just enough never underestimate the power of market and timing people who are extraordinarily successful are successful because they they time the market very well and that's like hindsight is 2020 right you have to be at the right place at the right time never underestimate that there are phenomenally talented founders i'm sure you're doing a phenomenal job of doing what you're doing you've still not seen breakout success because your timing is off either you are ahead of the market you are behind the market etc etc so just keep doing what you're doing you know if you're standing at the beach for long enough eventually the wave will hit you so it takes 10 years to look like you have been at the right place at the right time so so don't worry so much about it uh, just keep doing what you're doing and that brings us to the end of this conversation i want to ask you for a favor now did you like listening to this show i'd love to hear your feedback about it do you have your own startup ideas i'd love to hear them do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show i'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests write to me at ad@thepodium.in at that's ad@thepodium.in at 